and together as we read God's word. Jesus, talking to uh, his disciples at the Sermon on the Mount, says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. This week when I finished my sermon preparation, I leaned back in my chair and thought, this is a little too long, and it's a little too complicated, so I'm just asking for mercy right now, Uh, because you might leave and get in your car and say, he was right, it was a little too long and too, just don't tell me, okay, just... You can tell your spouse, just pass that. You can just pass by and say, short and not complicated, Pastor Paul. But this is a key text, and it's hard to know how to unpack it. I sort of got to the end of the sermon and thought, well, maybe I should just you know, throw all this away and start again. But I didn't do that. Um, when you come to the New Testament, there are places in the New Testament. Uh, where's Sam? Sam, I'm just worried now that I'm doing this all the time. Okay. <laughs> So when you come to the New Testament, you, you come in and there are some places that if you don't have an Old Testament framework, you really don't understand clearly what's happening in the New Testament. And this is one of those places. When, when Jesus says the, the law and the prophets in verse 17, he's referring to the whole Old Testament. It's, just, it's like shorthand saying everything in the Old Testament. And so there's, there's no way you can really understand what he's talking about without having some context for what he's talking about. And so before we, we move forward, I want to establish kind of a framework for why Jesus is even talking about this, and then we'll move forward. So let's, let's step back and think of the framework first. When Matthew wrote his gospel, he had primarily a Jewish audience in mind. Now, of course, he, he, he wouldn't have necessarily known that we'd be reading it 2,000 years later, but he was, he was the uh, apostle, he was the gospel writer specifically targeted towards uh, the Jewish audience or the Jewish mindset. 
So we're not surprised, if you just turn back a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we're not surprised to see him attaching Jesus' storyline right onto the Old Testament storyline. Look with me. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right away, Matthew wants to say, hey, this is a continuation of a story. Uh, there's a, a professor, I may have told you this before, he, he, he would say, I wish I could rip out one page of the Bible. And he would always say, the page that divides the Old Testament from the New Testament. Because it makes it feels like, well, there's this old story, and we don't need to really pay attention to that. We just need to pay attention to the new story. And Matthew's saying the very opposite. He's trying to attach Jesus to this old story. He's the son of David, as you see there. He's the the king in the line of David. And so you have to understand who David is if you want to understand that phrase. And he, he also wants to tie the thread of the Old Testament into the New Testament through Abraham. So, so Matthew is pulling on these Old Testament threads, so to speak, and he wants to tie them off to Jesus. To say, you know something about these people or these events, and I want you to see they terminate or they culminate or they're fulfilled in the person of Christ. And then in chapters 2 through 4, Matthew wants to pull on one more string. He's pulled on the the David string. He's pulled on the the Abraham string that all the nations are going to be blessed by through Abraham in some way. Well, this is it. This is Jesus. He's going to be the blessing. And he wants to pull on one more string, and he wants to pull on the Moses string. He wants to pull the Old Testament Moses and tie it off to himself, Jesus, and notice uh, the parallels. Chapter 2, Jesus comes up out of Egypt. Chapter 3, Jesus passes through the water of baptism, not the Red Sea, but the Jordan River. Chapter 4, Jesus goes into 40 days into the wilderness, not 40 years. Chapter 5, Jesus goes up on a mountainside to teach the law. Now, now we may not have really seen all that, but every listener that Matthew is talking about, they clearly understand what he's doing. He's pulling on this Moses thread. These are all the pictures of Moses, and it's not accidental. He's, he's informing us he's the termination point of the Moses story, that Jesus is the end. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses actually says this to his people right before his death. Listen to what he says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. So Jesus is that prophet. When Jesus gets baptized, he comes up out of the water and a voice comes from heaven. This is my son. And what, is, what does the Lord say? Listen to him. This is the one. This is, these are all the Old Testament has been speaking about this particular person. And Matthew's trying to help us understand or feel the, the Old Testament wave crash onto the shore of the New Testament. So that's the frame. That's, that's a framework that we have to understand when we get to the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is like a, a new Moses. He's coming up to say something about the law, what God wants us to do, what he wants us to know about himself. And when we come to this particular mountainside and he's standing there on the Sermon on the Mount talking about the law, basically saying, hey, this is how you're supposed to live in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells us two 
two things, verses 17 and 18. He tells about his own relationship to the law. So Christ's relationship to the law. And then in verse 19 and 20, the Christian's relationship to the law. So it divides pretty cleanly in that way. Christ's relationship to the law, we want to take most of our time on that. And then what's our relationship to the law? Does that make sense? Everybody nod. Okay, good. Got, got that. Got the framework. I understand. This Jesus is the new Moses. He's the one who's going to tell us about who God is. And first of all, let's look at Christ's relationship uh, to the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a, not a comma, not, a, not, a, not the crossing of a T will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is saying, first of all, don't think this way. Why? Because great crowds are following after Jesus. You can look back in just chapter 5, verse 1, that it's not just his disciples that are there at the Sermon on the Mount. All these crowds, all these people, Jesus has been around healing people, and people are coming, as you might imagine, in droves to see who Jesus is. And as they're following him, they're, they're leaning in, they're listening. He knows they're thinking about what he says because Jesus speaks with unusual authority. Just notice in verse 18, it says, for truly I say to you, or if you have the old King James, it's verily, verily. In the Greek, it's amen. So Jesus is amening himself before he even makes a statement. I'm looking for an amen after I make a statement. But he's going to, he's saying, what I'm about to say is so great. Just give me an amen right now. And everybody's leaning in because this person speaks with incredible authority. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, this is the, per, the people's reaction to Jesus' sermon, uh, verse 28. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So everyone's leaning in. Everybody's trying to understand. And everybody says, okay, this guy looks like a new kind of Moses. And Jesus wants them to think very clearly that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. You see what they're thinking was, is, hey, maybe this is the new Moses and we just don't want to have anything to do with the old Moses. So Jesus is trying to clear this up. I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, but to fulfill them. Jesus isn't coming to attack the Old Testament. He's coming to attach himself to the Old Testament. So what does it mean when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the Old Testament? Well, it could be a lot of things. I'm going to mention three. First, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. So in Matthew, the word fulfilled that's in this passage is used 15 different times. Jesus has come to fulfill certain things. In Matthew chapter 1 is a good example. She will bear a son. This is referring to the Virgin Mary. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 
So there's over 300 Old Testament prophecies, 300 Old Testament strings that terminate on Jesus. You go, oh, yeah, that's Jesus. He's, he's the one. He's the one who's going to save people from their sins. He's the one who's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's the prophet that's like Moses. He's the end of all of these prophecies. So number two, Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament shadows. So when John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of Jesus, sees Jesus right before the baptism, he sees Jesus for the first time and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who, what, takes away the sin of the world. So you don't understand that phrase if you don't have an Old Testament mindset. If you're just sitting there going, lamb and sins and world, what is he talking about? Well, what John is saying is that there was a perfect sacrificed Passover lamb. And in order to be saved from the angel of death, you had to sacrifice this perfect lamb, put the blood over the doorpost of your house so death would pass over your house. And now John is saying, this is the house you have to live in right now. And this is the blood that has to be over your house. So when death comes to you, actually it passes over you. So all of these shadows, all of these ceremonial shadows that are so uh, poignant, so uh, obvious pictures, that all of those strings terminate on Jesus. It's not just the prophecy, it's also these ceremonies, these pictures. But third, and to me maybe most importantly, Jesus perfectly fulfills the practice and the penalty of the moral law. Let me say that one more time, and then I'll explain it. Jesus fulfills not just the, the prophecy, not just the ceremonies or the pictures, but he also perfectly fulfills the practice and the penalty of the moral law. In other words, Jesus perfectly keeps the Ten Commandments. So let, let me try to unpack this, and hopefully this will make sense. Uh, there's two ways you can fulfill the law, just in general. You can keep the law. That's, that's really what you should be trying to do. You can fulfill the law just by keeping the law. Or you can fulfill the law if you've broken the law by paying the penalty. Does that make sense? There's two different ways. You can, you can just keep it, or if you break it, then you've got to pay the penalty for that law. Let me give you an example. I, I don't know if they still have these around town, but the, most of you are probably familiar with like the red light cameras, right? So if you run through the intersection... I, I'm not asking for a show of hands, uh, but I have it on good authority that this is what happens if you actually run one of those <clears throat> stoplights, is that the police department sends you a picture of your car. It's a nice little picture, and it's got the back of your car with the license plate and a red stoplight in the same frame. So there's no question. You can't say, not that I would, I'm just saying, somebody could say, hey, it was yellow when I, you know, no, it's red. And you've got to pay the fine. So what, what you need to do is just not run the stoplight. But if you run the stoplight and then you pay the $50 penalty, then the law doesn't have any more hold over you. It cannot condemn you. Why? Because you've paid it. And once you paid it, okay, I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to do that again. So, so there's, there's two ways to keep the law. You can, you can keep it perfectly, or once you pay the penalty, the law can no longer condemn you. 
Now, here, here's the good news. Jesus fulfills both sides of the law. This is really so important to understand. First of all, 613 Old Testament laws, he keeps them perfectly. He keeps every one of them perfectly. So Peter can say, Jesus committed no sin, 1 Peter 2. And on the cross, he pays for all the penalty that has been broken. He keeps it perfectly, and he pays for it totally. So Paul says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You ran the red light, and he pays the penalty. That, that's the, the great news of the gospel. And because Jesus fulfills both sides of these, he keeps it and he pays for it, then, then he really offers freedom from condemnation from the law. Now, this is really huge for a few people here. It's huge for everybody. It's huge for the whole world. But the way I want to try to help you understand why this is so important is really huge because I think it could unlock some of us from a, sort of a long-term mental condemnation that we have in our own mind. Paul, in Galatians 5, he, he shouts this out. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's kind of his Braveheart moment. I mean, he's coming and saying, We're, we have been set free, and we've been set free to be free. It, he just can't say it any stronger. And so he says, Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again, listen, by the condemnation of of the law. So if you've really given your life to Christ, he has really paid for every sin, past, present, and future in your life, and you cannot pay any of it. He has paid it all. He's kept the law perfectly, and he's giving you his perfect righteousness. So we don't have any more condemnation. So Paul is trying to help us understand that don't let the law drag you back into some kind of prison demanding that you pay for it. And this happens all the time with people. Martin Luther, he, he really unpacks this so perfectly in his preface. He wrote a commentary on Galatians. And it was all about freedom from the law. And listen, listen to how he says this so perfectly. We have seen that for a Christian, the law ought to have dominion only over our flesh. All right, so Jesus is going to unpack something about anger here in a few minutes or lust or loving your enemies. And, and he's giving you uh, guardrails and guidelines to say this is how you're supposed to live. This is how you're supposed to act with your, your, your mannerisms or, or your mind. The law is still very useful to give instructions on how to live, not how to get into, but how to live in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, but if the law presumes, I love this imagery, to creep into your conscience. See, it's meant to, to guard your flesh, saying, you know, this is, the, this is the good and beautiful life. Go this way. But if it wants to move up into your conscience, which it happens for many people, if it tries to climb up into your conscience and tries to reign there, then you must say this. 
See, Martin Luther understands that's a problem for a lot of people. They're in the kingdom of heaven, but they mess up, and this condemnation comes back up in their mind saying, uh-oh, I'm going to have to pay. Now, this is what this, he's, he's saying. Now, you need to preach this to yourself. This is what he says. You, he's speaking, you know, to his mind. You have these conversations in your mind, right? You, law, you want to climb up into the kingdom of my conscience, do you? You want to reign over me, accuse me, drive me to desperation, and take away the joy I have by faith in Christ? Keep within your bounds. I love that. I feel you rising up and trying to condemn me to say, Paul, see, you really are a loser. You really do have to pay for that. If you were a Christian, you wouldn't behave that way or you wouldn't have said that. I feel all that condemnation, don't you? And he's saying, no, keep within your bounds, law. Exercise your power over the flesh, but do not touch my conscience. I am called to Christ's kingdom where my conscience is at rest and there is no law, but rather forgiveness of sins, peace, quietness, joy, health, and everlasting life. Do not trouble me in these matters, for I will not let an intolerable tyrant like you reign in my conscience. Such a great quote. I feel, I feel the condemnation of the law. And it wants to creep up into my conscience. It can say, I can say, God, I shouldn't have said that. I'm asking for your forgiveness. But I'm not condemned anymore by it. Why? Because Jesus took it all. And so here's my concern is that, that for some of you inside the kingdom of heaven, spend your entire imperfect Christian lives with your conscience constantly badgered by the condemnation of the law. You really are free because Christ has set you free. You've been set free, Paul says. But you don't live free. You live like a prisoner. You, you're like a person who's hung on the, the, the gate of the prison door. And God's come along and said, I have let you out. And you go, yes, yes. And then you screw up and you go, oh, I'm back in, I'm back in. And when you get back in, what do you have to do? Well, I, I guess my sinner's prayer didn't take. So I got to say the sinner's prayer again. Lord, you know, would you, would you, you know, die for my sin? Yeah, yeah. Okay, you're free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I messed up. Oh, I'm back in. And you spend your whole life just right here going in and out of prison. You're not really free in the way God wants you to be. Because you're constantly feeling that condemnation from your mistakes that you're going to make the rest of your Christian life. And when you make those mistakes, you say, God, your mercies are new every morning. Your forgiveness runs underneath my sinful heart. I'm trusting in your sacrifice for me. But I am not going to be condemned any longer by the law because you paid for it. That is a great freedom. And I hope. That this passage, Jesus is trying to get some of you out of that prison. That you just swing on the door back and forth. You never really grow in Christ. You're always giving your life to Christ. And I want to say, stop giving your life to Christ. I thought you probably never thought that would happen in a sermon, did you? <laughs> some of you need to, but I'm just saying, once you have, you don't need to keep doing that. When I was a kid, I gave my life to Christ like 4,000 times. But you see, he's done something for you. He's kept it perfectly 
I'm not going to keep it perfectly. And I've messed up so many ways, and he has paid the total penalty. That's how he fulfills the law. It's a great, great joy, if you understand that correctly. All right, so secondly, so that's Christ's relationship to the law. Secondly, and finally, the, the Christian's relationship to the law. Now, let's look at 19 and 20. Therefore, okay, you see that? Therefore, I've just told you about Jesus' relationship to the law. Now we're transferring. Therefore, now that you understand that, he wants to help you understand this. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're paying attention, you should say, uh, let's back up the bus. Let's rewind the tape because it sure sounds like good news in verse 17 and 18, but doesn't sound like such good news in 19 and 20. And so what what is it? Are we really free or this doesn't sound so freeing in these last two verses? Sounds like he's saying just the opposite. You know, if you don't keep the law, then you're not going to get into heaven when you just said, well, I've just kept the law. So what's he talking about? And let me just make a comment on each verse. Verse 19. I think what Jesus is primarily saying is that once you repent and you enter into the kingdom of heaven, there are still going to be commands to obey. And we know that's true because we're just about ready to get into the commands. When Sam preaches next week and David preaches the week after that, and then I come back from India and preach the week after that, we're all going to be talking about these commands. So, so there are still what you might call rules of the house. Once you get into the kingdom of heaven, there are still going to be laws to follow. You don't get in by following them. You're clear on that, are you not? But once you get in, he's saying this is how you're supposed to live inside the kingdom of heaven. So you want to make sure you understand those things and you're living that way. When you encounter Jesus, you're not free to do whatever you want to do. You're free to live according to Jesus' commands. See, when I don't know Jesus... I'm only going to be free to follow my own desires. But now that I know Jesus, I'm actually free to get away from those desires and move towards God's desire for my life. And so I just love here how Jesus defines greatness. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does these commands, whoever teaches other people to do them, that's his definition of greatness. What a long way from the cultural definition of greatness. Oh, man. It is so discouraging, is it not, to just turn on, whether it's politics or media or sports or entertainment, you name it. And their definition of greatness is 180 from this. And here's Jesus saying, hey, you really want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Understand what I'm about ready to say here in the Sermon on the Mount. Try to line your life up with that. Use the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in this way and teach others. Teach others to do the same. And so I just want to take a moment here just to appreciate the last eight weeks. These are the teachers that have been teaching our kids 
the Renegers, Charity Wilson, the Lindsays, Angela Parham, the Shorts, Jessa Batson, Hannah Parham, Roy Strite, Jennifer Ingvy, Graham Radford, the Spatels, the Hearts. Thank you. Thank you for, for turning off your television sometime during the week and saying, I've got to really prepare my Bible lesson for my, second, my two-year-olds or my second graders or my middle schoolers. I've got to check myself. Am I really living according to God's commands? I'm going to be teaching these kids how to live this way. And, and, and I'm just so thankful for your idea to match up with this idea that you're, you're doing something great in the kingdom of heaven. So I think in, when he's just saying in verse 19... What I say goes. So we don't want to just jettison what Jesus says. We really want to understand what he's saying, and we want to live in that way. Again, not to get in, but to live inside the kingdom of heaven. And now verse 20. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you know anything about the Pharisees, They're like the Navy SEALs of righteousness. So you're like, "Uh uh-oh, I don't don't think I'm going to get in the Navy SEALs of righteousness. I mean, these are the the top tier, top line. And and everyone hearing this, including us, is supposed to say, ooh, I'm not going to squeeze into that real tight group. That was the whole purpose of Jesus saying this. So everybody who might have been asleep would wake up and go, whoa, I'm supposed to be better than a Pharisee? I'm never going to get into that group. I'm never going to get into the kingdom of heaven. That's exactly what Jesus wants the audience to say. Here's how David Platt responds to this verse. Jesus is not saying you must have a quantitatively greater righteousness. Meaning, the Pharisees scored like a 92 and you've got to score a 92 or better to get in. Does that make sense? He's not talking about a quantitative greaterness. Instead, he's, he, he, that misses the point altogether if you think it's quantitative. Rather, Jesus is talking about a qualitative difference in righteousness. It's a righteousness of a different kind altogether. It's not an outer righteousness. Listen to what he says. It's not an outer righteousness to show everyone how good you look but an inner righteousness that shows how gracious and powerful God is. I I want to transfer the thinking from outer righteousness because you can have an outer righteousness and be called by Jesus a whitewashed tomb, which he calls the Pharisees later in Matthew. I'm trying to get your focus off an outer righteousness. Have I checked all these boxes to some condition of the heart? And a condition of the heart that helps you understand it's God who's been gracious. It's God who gives me power to live as I do. So when you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So when Jesus is talking about he's trying to get everybody to lean in and try to understand what he's talking about. The difference between this qualitative and quantitative. This inside and outside. This, this checking the box versus the condition of the heart. And so... When, when we get to the end of the sermon, uh, we have to understand that when we get to the, this in verse 20, he's talking about eternal destiny. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you understand this. So we all want to lean in at this particular point. When, when you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus summarized the sermon by giving you three pictures. It's like he's, he's said a lot of stuff, 
And in case you're not very verbal, you're more picture. He says, okay, in case you just aren't the verbal type, let me give you some pictures. And, and he summarized it with three pictures that are telling you the same thing. And they're right in a row. And he's describing two different ways to live. Now, he's describing this for people who are calling themselves disciples. Does that make sense? He's not describing the people who wouldn't have anything to do with Jesus and out on the outside. He's saying, you're disciples. You're people who are saying, you're inside the church. So everyone here should say, hey, he must be talking to me right now. He's not talking to my neighbor. He's talking to me. People inside the church, there's two different ways that you can live. And you want to be careful not to live one of these ways. Here are the three pictures. Uh, getting into the kingdom of heaven is like, uh, gates. There's a narrow one and a wide one. Or a second picture, it's like a tree. One bears good fruit, one bears bad fruit. Or third, and the final one, it's like a house. One's built on a good foundation, one's built on a faulty foundation. Again, he's saying everyone inside the church is living one of these two ways. And And since he ends by saying, you better choose the right one. Make sure you've got your, your, your bearing good fruit. Your foundation is on the right spot. You're going through the narrow gate. Since Jesus ends his sermon with this description, you would think that earlier in the sermon, he would describe to you what he's talking about. And that's exactly what he does. Uh, he describes these two ways by this way. First of all, he mentions giving to the poor. When he talks about giving to the poor, he doesn't talk about people who give to the poor and people who don't give to the poor. He talks about people who give to the poor to get applause or people who give to the poor who don't even pack themselves on the back. See, everyone inside the church is supposed to be giving to the poor. He's just assuming that. The question is, are you doing it for the applause of the world are you patting yourself on the back? When Jesus talks about prayer, he doesn't talk about people who will pray and people who won't pray. He's saying, oh, everybody here is going to be praying. But the difference is people who talk about praying to receive praise from God, praise from people, or people who just pray to praise God. When Jesus talks about fasting, he doesn't talk about people who fast and those who don't. No, he talks about people who fast so they, they can be seen and people who fast who nobody knows that they're fasting. So Jesus' sermon ends with this very important warning to say you can, you can attend church your whole life. You can give to the poor. You can pray. You can fast. You can have all the outward signs, but still be on the wide road that leads to destruction. Do you hear, hear what he's saying? There's two ways for people who follow him to follow him. One is the wide way to read, leads to destruction. And when you think you arrive at heaven's gate, Jesus is going to say, I did not know who you were. Please do not live on this way. And do not think just fasting and praying and giving to the poor is going to get you there because it's not going to get you there. There's a totally different condition. If you're inside the church, if you're piling up merit badges to present to God when you see him face to face, that's the wide way. 
here's another way it might come out. If, if you're trying to live a good life, and when things don't turn out your way, and you whisper this in your heart, God shouldn't have allowed this to turn out this way because I've kept his law. Oh, you're on a wide way. You're on the wide way because, see, it's about you. You've made your whole religious structure about you. And you're going to pull up to heaven's gates, however it looks like, and say, I built this whole thing to myself. And God, you owe me. And he's going to say, I don't know who you are. See, it's very easy to be inside the church and to attach the law to yourself as saying, I'm doing all these things. I'm praying. I'm giving to the poor. I come every Sunday. And you're on a wide road to destruction. And Jesus is trying to say, no, it's not, it's not about external conditions. It's about an internal condition. And that's why the very first sermon here of the series is something that probably we need to go back to like every other time. It's to say, blessed are the poor, what? In spirit. People who understand, I'm completely bankrupt. I don't have anything to offer. So when I start giving to the poor, once I'm in the kingdom of heaven, once I start praying, once I'm in the kingdom of heaven, once I start fasting, when I'm in the kingdom of heaven, they're never going to be merit badges. It's only one, one merit badge. This is so helpful because when, when, when Sam talks about love and lust, and David talks about integrity, you're going to find yourselves going, I don't do those things. Yeah. And what do you need to do at that point? I got to do better. No, I've got to trust Jesus more. See, some of you are here, and I'm really concerned that you're on a wide way, and you might not know it. And that's why Jesus is trying to say, Amen, before I say anything. Because you really need to lean in. And in case you don't get what he says, he's just trying to line up one picture after another, so you can't possibly miss the way. It's not about your external deeds. It's about the condition of your heart. And have you really come to Jesus saying, I am completely bankrupt? Now, if you have, please hear Jesus say, you're free. You're really, really free. You're free from your sins in the past, in the present, and the one you're going to take to the future. Please get off the swinging gate and let go. And really enjoy the freedom that God has provided for you. You don't live underneath the condemnation of the law anymore. Let's pray together. Lord, this might have been a little too long and a little too complicated. So every Sunday we need the same thing. And that is the, the power and the clarity of the Holy Spirit to speak, to, to, to drive away grayness, to drive away fog, for, for us to even be able to see ourselves. Maybe, maybe we're the people 
who are just doing the stuff externally and we're being arrested right now saying, I'm on the wrong road. I do whisper to myself when things go wrong, God shouldn't allow this to happen to me because I've built my whole religion on myself. Maybe there's some people who are saying, I'm, I'm on that swinging prison gate. I never get very far from the condemnation of the law. And I don't live with freedom. I live with fear and condemnation. Would you help your people, I pray, in Jesus' name.